You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Yeah, before I um, begin my message, I just wanted to quickly say thank you. Um, I was here this summer, and uh, a number of you came, came by the table, and I, and I truly do know that there's, there are a few cheerleaders uh, in this church who understand our mission and, and champion it. I, I won't point them out or uh, name them, but they know who they are, and uh, um, we, we, at the start of this year, we, we wanted to reach out again to students. We've had that opportunity finally, post-COVID, and we handed out 2,400 packs of gum with an invitation to come to our on-campus ministry. And over this term, we saw 100, over 180 students connect with our ministry. Um, and about 80 of them have jumped into uh, our discipling groups. Uh, so much like your Kairos program or what have you, uh, uh, you know, we're trying to reach students and disciple them and then send them back on mission as well, which I hope uh, sounds like this church is all about as well. So anyways, thank you for your prayers and thank you for kind of paying attention to that mission field up there. Um, anybody here grew up in a small town? I grew up in a small town in the prairies, Dauphin, Manitoba, population 9,000. Can anybody beat that? Anything smaller? Yeah, smaller? Yeah, okay. So you, you know what it's like. Um, Dauphin, its main industry is agriculture. So I grew up around a lot of farmers, you know, I had two uncles who were farmers, a lot of the men in my church were farmers, a lot of families were farmers, and let me tell you, I am not a farm kid, I, 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 not in like in any way at all. I grew up longing for the city, I couldn't wait to get out of that small town and go to the big city. I felt small growing up in a small town, and I longed for something bigger. Um, we only had one movie theater, and it only played one movie once a week. If you didn't like it, too bad, right? We had a little mall, and the best store in it was Mark's Work Warehouse. Yeah. The biggest, the biggest building in town was only four stories high, and it was a seniors complex. So if that doesn't tell you a little bit about my small town. So I long for something bigger. And when I moved away and I went to university and then later moved to Vancouver, I finally felt at home, finally in this big city. Goodbye, small town. I'm off to do large and important things. In my youth, I wanted to live the Herod way, where everything was bigger and better, where size and wealth equated success, where being ahead or having more Feeling important, you know, was the end game. But today I no longer long to follow the Herod way. I've come to know that bigger isn't always better. I've come to believe that success is more about steadfast faithfulness. I've come to believe in a life of obedience to Jesus, a life of serving others and not seeking my own glory, but the glory of God is truly the real end game. Why? Because I made a commitment to learning the way of Jesus. And this morning, I want to talk to you about this topic, about learning to live the way of Jesus. But how does one do that? 
How do we train ourselves not to live the Herod way as so much of our culture wants to live in this way and instead live the Jesus way? Well, let's first talk about the Herod way. Who is Herod? Herod was the biggest name in Palestine. He was the richest man in the world. He employed more people than anyone in the country. You couldn't walk out of your house in Jesus' day without hearing the name Herod. Today, if you're sick of hearing the name Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, try Herod, Herod, Herod. In 40 BC, Herod was appointed by the Roman Senate as their vassal king to rule Judea, Samaria, and Galilee on behalf of Rome. And Herod secured this rule over three years through political allegiances, guerrilla warfare, and honestly, the brutal execution of anyone who challenged him, including some of his own family members. True story. Herod would remain in power for 34 years, right up until a few years just after Jesus' birth, which is quite remarkable because after him, the Caesars and the, and, the, and the vassal kings would turn over quite rapidly. We read about Herod. You might be familiar from, with him from Scripture in Matthew's Gospel, right? Matthew chapter 2. Um, Herod's the king who the Magi from the east go asking, hey, who is, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, right? And here's the one who then feels threatened, and honestly, at this point in his life, has a bit of a touch of insanity, and he, he shortly thereafter says, you know, he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years or younger. And so as we read in the Gospels, you know, Joseph and Mary, they escape Egypt. A few, late, few years later, Herod dies, and then Jesus' family is able to return from exile, and Jesus is raised in Nazareth. So that's Herod, right? Herod is this monster of a character. Um, but what's interesting about Herod, if you dig into and you look at what Herod accomplished, as a historical figure... It's really hard not to be impressed by Herod. Rome was the world empire in Jesus' day, and Herod reproduced that world of power and consumption on a smaller scale in Palestine. Politically, he brought order and prosperity. Culturally, he spread Greek and Roman culture. In terms of construction, he built amphitheaters and hippodromes and palaces and aqueducts and roads and new, you know, he built new cities and he restored old cities. He did it all, right? And for that period of time, it was all about Herod, Herod, Herod. And in some ways, he outdid Rome. Like one of his palace complexes of the seven that he built was larger than any of the Caesar's palaces in Rome. So today, if you, were to, if you were to go to Israel, and I did, I did, yeah. Um, my wife and I had the opportunity to go on a pilgrimage uh, this, this spring. And what I didn't expect when we go on this pilgrimage was how many sites of Herods we would see. So you can see lots of excavations and the remains of these big building projects. And so this morning, I want to show you three, 
okay? So for the next, you know, six or seven or eight minutes here, it's going to feel like a slideshow. Do you guys want to come watch my slideshow with me? Oh, there's me and my wife. There it is. Proof, proof we, we went. All right, so the first one we're going to look at is Herod's Desert Palace called Masada, Herod's Luxury Fortress. On the first day, actually, on the first day that we did a road trip on our pilgrimage, we went to this site, a Masada. So Herod built this fortress, um, palace, on the top of this massive, steep rock plateau that towers some 1,300 feet from the, from the desert floor. The top of it, the flat part of it, measures 1,800 feet long and 900 feet wide. It's quite, quite large. And on top of it, we saw these massive storerooms that he, that he used for dry food. And it, these, these storerooms could feed an army for two years. That was the idea, right? Is, there's my wife modeling it, how big these storerooms were. As well, they had um, these huge cisterns for water, and it could store up to 10 million gallons of water. There's a person there to show you how big it is. So what's interesting, though, is this was a fortress, right, to, to, to provide military security. So that's why all the water and the food to store it so they could remain up there uh, and, and secure. But at the same time, and what we notice, this common thread with Herod, is that everything that he built, he always added luxury. Uh, we saw these, this decorated banquet hall and um, you had to kind of imagine what it would have looked like, but it was this decorative banquet hall. He had these beautiful mosaic floors and all these beautiful rooms. And then what really stood out to me was these thermal bathhouses that he built. There was a frigidaire, you know, a, a cold room. There was a tepidarium, a cool room. And then there was a calidarium, a hot room. And uh, they, he had figured out and they had engineered kind of like what we would think of today as a modern bathhouse. It's kind of mind-blowing. What he had done was he was mimicking the style of bathhouses that were prominent in Rome at the time, but up on this military fortress. Wherever Herod went, he wanted to indulge in luxury. And that is something we learned about Herod, that Herod knew how to satisfy his appetite. You know, when I moved to Kelowna, uh, uh, Brendan, I remember going out for coffee with Brendan, and he, was, uh, he shared with me, I remember him saying, he was like, you know, one thing I'm picking up on Kelowna culture is everybody here worships play. I remember that stuck out to me. I was like, yeah, it's very true, right? Kelowna, we really know how to satisfy our appetites, don't we? Um, the second location that I want to take you to is the Temple Mount. So in Herod's day, Herod expanded the Temple Mount. This was his most famous and ambitious project, was the expansion of the Temple Mount. He, in 20 BC, he had his engineers expand the platform built on top of Mount Zion to the size of 25 US football fields, right? So you know how big a football field is, times 25. It's huge. It's completely engulfing the mountain. This is a model, a replica, of what it would have looked like. 
So this plaza was surrounded by a mile of porticos, porticos held up by two rows of 30-foot-tall stone columns. So that, that, that's the area that you know, Jesus would have taught in the cool of the day. That's where people would kind of hang out to avoid the sun. And really what Herod did was he turned it into one of the greatest religious structures of the ancient world. And it still stands out as one of the greatest for us to visit today. But why would he do that? Um, why would Herod spend his time developing the Temple Mount? It's, it's really impressive. As you walk along, here's, here's one side of the wall, the Western Wall, where, where Jews today will, will pray. Here's, here's the Southern Stairs. These are the stairs that Jesus would have walked up to enter into the Temple. Um, could see a few sides here. And the stones are just massive. These are the, the base stones are just so huge, just to show you how big they are. And I'm not a big person, so look how huge those are. <laughs> um, the disciples thought they were huge, right? Remember, they were like, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent building. They were in awe of it. Here's to show you even more. Why did Herod do this? Herod wasn't actually a particular pious person. Uh, even though he claimed to follow the religion of the Jews, his ancestry, his decadent lifestyle, his loyalty to Rome always left him under criticism from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So why did, why did he spend time expanding the Temple Mount? Well, really, his goal with this reconstruction was that he hoped to gain more support, right? To keep favor, Herod wanted approval. Throughout his whole life, he wanted approval. When we reflect on our lives, how much, what do we do to gain the approval of others? How many of our actions, how many of the things that we put our time or money into is really about gaining the approval of our neighbors, keeping up with the Joneses, staying in favor? Our third location that I want to go to is Herodium. And this is where Herod would eventually have his mausoleum. So Herod built this fortress and this palace at this spot to remember a victory he had won earlier in his life and to just, you know, just to make sure that everybody knew how great he was. He named the place after himself, Herodium. Um... He had his engineers hollow out the top of this mountain, and they smoothed out the sides with the excavation fill, and then they, they built it with this seven-story circular fortress, which then was topped with a 140-foot tower. And this fortress, like I said earlier, was, of course, filled with many luxuries, just like at Masada. There was a pool that was twice the size of a modern Olympic pool. There were banquet halls. There was the royal chamber. He had this beautiful theater that looked out onto the landscape. There were spas. There was open-air gardens. This theater, which we got to walk around in, 630-seat uh, theater, it's just gorgeous. But in the last chapter of his life, Herod decides it's at Herodium where he will be buried. And he has his engineers 
um, develop, uh, design this lavish monument to himself. Let me just get to it. Oh, here we go. So this palace. Here we go. So he has them design this beautiful mausoleum. And you can see that's where the remains of it would have been. So that's a model, and then it would have been right there. But when he has this model built, so you can see it on the left of the staircases there. When he has this mausoleum built, he tells his engineers, can you destroy that theater right next to it, please? And they're like, what? Like, you know how long it took to build that? You know how beautiful it is? Why would he do that? Why would he have that theater destroyed? Well, because he didn't want it to distract anyone from his mausoleum, right? After he was gone, he wanted to make sure that everybody paid attention to his mausoleum. The theater was too beautiful, so it needed to be destroyed. So they destroyed that beautiful theater, and they couldn't find it for quite a while. It's actually quite remarkable how they found it, and then they were able to excavate it. This burial place was designed to keep people impressed with his power and, the, and his importance and his fame forever. So not only did Herod have a grand appetite and a grand need for approval, he wanted the whole world to remember his great ambition his kingship, his kingdom, himself, right? He wanted people to remember Herod, Herod, Herod. And I think we all do this too, right, in our lives. We want to be remembered. Think of how much we invest in our kids, hoping that our kids will carry on the memory of ourselves. It's very interesting. Jesus' birth and, and Herod's death overlap um, over two years. Jesus was born and Herod dies within just a few years of each other. And the contrast of these two events couldn't be any more different. Jesus was born in a shelter for animals in a small village, right? His birth was a quiet affair announced to some lowly shepherds. He was attended to by his loving parents. And his visitors consisted of some religious scholars, the Magi, some young shepherds, and according to every Christmas pageant I've been ever at, is a donkey, a cow, and a couple of sheep, right? <laughs> Herod's funeral was neither obscure nor quiet. His funeral was a lavish affair, thousands in procession. During the last years of his life, Herod had become such a monster that he was actually, he was suspicious of so many people around him. He was constantly, people were getting executed, including his own family members. And so Herod knew that when he died, that there would be celebrations, not mourning, right? All over the country. And so to ensure that there was mourning, when his death seemed to be approaching, he ordered the arrest of Jewish elders in a number of villages across Palestine. They were jailed with the instructions to have them killed as soon as he died to ensure that there was mourning. Fortunately, his orders weren't ever carried out, but there was plenty of pomp and ceremony at his funeral, but no tears. 
There's a stark contrast between the way of Herod and the way of Jesus. When I was preparing this message and I was reflecting on Herod, um, it made me realize that um, it parallels uh, Jesus' big three temptations in a lot of ways. In a, in a way, you could say that Jesus and Herod um, actually had similar goals. Herod wanted to be king, and he wanted to establish his kingdom and his way of life forever. You know, Jesus is our true king, right? And he sought to establish God's kingdom and his way of life forever. But of course, they went about it in totally different ways. And as I was saying, it really made me realize that it's like Herod responded to the three temptations in the exact opposite way of Jesus. Jesus' first temptation was a temptation of appetite, right? The first temptation, the tempter says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Go ahead, Jesus, satisfy your hunger, satisfy your need for comfort, please yourself, you deserve it. But Jesus responds, one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is a representative of God, the king, and he says, I can trust in my good king. My good king will satisfy my needs. I don't need to reach out and try to satisfy them myself. I was reading in John chapter 4 recently the story of the woman at the well, and um, he says that same thing later in his ministry as well, right? Um, The disciples go into town to get food, and then he's left at the well, and he has this encounter with this woman at the well, and she tells, he tells her all about her life, and she's amazed, and she goes and proclaims about her encounter with Jesus. Then the disciples come back, and, and uh, they say, you know, did someone bring you some food? And Jesus says, food? Well, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, right? Have you, have you guys ever experienced that in your life where actually you're following God so well that all other distractions don't? take hold of you. I think when we fill our life with the life of Jesus, um, our lives get pointed in the right direction, and we don't seek out satisfying, trying to satisfy our, our desires through other ways by ones that are unfulfilling and unsatisfying. I found this true in my life, that when I'm focused on serving others or doing good works of God, that these things that are, you know, unsatisfying fall to the wayside. Second temptation that Jesus experiences in the wilderness is one of approval, right? The tempter brings Jesus to the highest point in the temple and tells him to throw himself down to prove that angels will rescue him. Prove how much you matter to God. Put on a spectacle for others. Show them your great importance. But true freedom is when we no longer need somebody special, when we no longer need to be somebody special in other people's eyes because we know we are truly loved and accepted by God. Jesus responds with, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, I don't need to seek the approval of others. 
because I have the approval of God the Father. He'd just come through this baptism moment where God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And do you know that God, like, God sees each one of us that way? He sees you and he says, you are my children. You don't need to do anything to win my approval. And we see over the course of Jesus' life that he doesn't seek the approval of others, but in fact, he does quite the opposite, right? He seeks to serve others, and he teaches the disciples to do the same thing. Remember in Matthew 20, 20, the mother of James and John, they come to Jesus, and she's asking that, hey, would you grant these two, like, an important place in your kingdom to come? And Jesus is like, you don't really know what you're asking. And then he teaches them that the Jesus way is about submitting yourself to others, to serving. He says, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. In John 13, he actually models this to to the disciples, right? This principle by washing their feet. And as I was reflecting on that, I was thinking, wow, can you imagine Herod washing someone's feet? (laughs) Not at all. That wasn't his MO at all. Maybe we have to ask ourselves that, right? How willing are we to wash someone else's feet? It might help us measure whether we're following the Jesus way. And then thirdly, the third temptation, it's this temptation for ambition. The tempter shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and he says he will give him all of this if Jesus would simply bow down and worship him. He's like, you, you can serve your own will. You can serve your own ambitions. And, and, and the tempter's like, you, you probably have great ambitions, you know, and, and, and you, you want to have this, you have this idea of how to benefit the whole world. I'll let you do that. I'll let you establish your kingdom now, and you can do it all your own way, but first you must bow down and serve me. Imagine that shortcut, right? I think we all have ambitions. We all have goals in our life. We all have a picture of what we want to accomplish, what our family should be like, what our vocation should be like, what we want to accomplish in this world. Imagine if someone gave you a shortcut to get it all right now. That'd be tempting, right? And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He will only do the will of the Father. He wants a life that glorifies God from start to finish. And throughout his ministry, we hear in the Gospels, Jesus say this over and over and over again, right? It's not about his will. It's not about what he wants to accomplish. He constantly says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And we need that phrase on our lips. If we want to follow the Jesus way, we need to say that, and we need to speak that to ourselves constantly. Not my will, but his will. When Jesus launched his public ministry by saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, he was saying, time is up. No longer will this world be ruled by the way of Herod. We don't have to follow that way. There's a different way. There's the Jesus way. And at times, it's going to feel like an upside-down kind of way. 
It's not going to feel like the intuitive kind of way that we should do things. It's going to be very different than what we're constantly taught in our world. It's a leader. We're going to follow a leader who decided to serve and not be served. It's a leader who didn't try to satisfy his own appetites, but sought the word of God, the bread of life. And that's what we need to seek, Jesus as our bread of life. We need to willingly submit our plans because he is a good, good father, a king who has a better plan than ours. Amen? Um, This summer, after being away from Manitoba for four years, we finally got to visit. And um, I don't always like returning to my small town. Uh, but it's, uh, it's where all my family is now, and so I got to visit all my family, my dad, my stepmom, and um, my sister and her kids, and my mom and my older sister and all her kids, and I got to see everybody, which was great. But I also had the opportunity to visit my home church, and here's my home church. It's got great, like, Manitoba siding. It's really good. That kind of siding endures the winters. That's what that looks like. If that doesn't look pretty to you, it should look efficient. Uh, <laughs> And I was invited to preach at the church, and man, everybody came out. It was a huge gathering. Like, there were like 28 people there. It's like, it's like all the Christians in town. It's amazing. My sister organized a potluck afterwards, because that's what you do in small towns, and it was wonderful, and there were pierogies. It was great. And at the potluck, I had a chance to reconnect with a number of the kind of elder people in my church, and here's their faces. I was like, can I snap a selfie? And they're like, a what? And uh, like, like <laughs> he's like, what? Um, but when I looked, when I got to connect at this church, it reminded me of the people who invested me as a youth and the quality of people who invested in me. Um, I spend, I've spent 18 years working on the university campus. None of those elders have university degrees. None of them have formal theological training. None of them are social influencers, or none of them would want to, you know, get up on stage and communicate in front of a bunch of people. None of them have big houses or nice cars or what have you. But each one of them played a part in showing me the Jesus way. They taught me things like bigger isn't always better, that success is more about faithfulness, They displayed in their life a life of obedience to Jesus, a life of serving others, of not seeking their own glory, but the glory of God. They taught me the Jesus way. And I hope that there are people in this church who inspire you too to live the Jesus way. That's that's what this is meant to be, right? This is why we gather together, why we're in fellowship together, why we do community life together, to spur one another on in following the Jesus way and to help correct one another when we're not, right? That takes guts. That takes challenge. And so I just pray for this community that as you come to know the Jesus way, that you will actively reject the Herod way. Amen? Amen. Can I pray for you? Um, And I'll just invite the band. I know we're going to close in a word of 
and uh, in a, in a song. So, Father God, I, I thank you for um, this message this morning and even this person of Herod who then showed us not the way. Um, this is not easy in our life, God. It's not easy in our culture. It's not easy in the rat race to follow your way. But Jesus, as followers of you, we want to recommit ourselves even right now, in this moment, I think each one of us probably struggle with one of those issues of appetite, ambition, approval. And so, Father God, we lay that down in front of you today. And we say we don't want to fall into those temptations, but we want to follow you. We thank you, Jesus, that you conquered each one of those on our behalf. And then as we invite you into our lives and you are in us and we are in you, um, we can live a life following your way. Help us to go do that as we leave today. In Jesus' name, amen.